0: Well, thank you so much for your warm welcome. I have to say I do travel a lot. I get to be in lots of different church communities, and um, it's been wonderful to arrive and already have spoken to so many of you and have had so many of you be kind to myself and to Toby, even in the space of uh, 20 minutes before the uh, service began. Um, I was so excited when I heard that you'd been doing this series last term on confidence in the gospel And this morning, what I felt God put on my heart to um, share with you is something of the big picture of what it looks like to have vision for evangelism. I've been reading uh, through Deuteronomy recently and just remembering again what the difference of perspective does to people. Uh, it's, It's in Numbers, I think, this particular verse that I was remembering as I read through Deuteronomy where the Israelites are at the edge of the promised land. They do their investigative work and they come back and they say, that we looked like grasshoppers in their eyes and in our eyes as well. And how that one bit of perspective changed the destiny of an entire nation and an entire generation died in the desert. And what I've been asking God for and what I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to do today is something of a perspective that brings vision, prophetic vision, is really what I hope to impart and believe that God wants to do. And I am so excited to hear that this is something of what's been happening already, the Holy Spirit going ahead and bringing a change of vision, a change of perspective that I believe will bring a transformation of action and therefore fruitfulness. And my prayer has been that as you look back on this Sunday and on this series that you've experienced, that you would look back on this time as a congregation of people and believe and know that it was something of an impartation of faith that changed the trajectory of fruitfulness in your lives as a community. So I hope to build into what's already happening and what the Holy Spirit has already been doing amongst you and speak to you about perspective about prophetic vision as you look at evangelism. And I'm going to really make some very basic points and give you some practical pointers as well as you think about how might we view the landscape in a way that honors God and is true to the reality of the kingdom of God and how might that change our actions as a result. And I'm going to speak to seeing God having a prophetic vision of who god is in the mix of this great commission seeing the lost appropriately having vision a prophetic vision of who they really are in the mix and then seeing ourselves and um, Yeah, that there we'll see what the Holy Spirit does at the end of that time. Let me get straight into it and speak to us about prophetic vision, about vision, seeing God as he really is, and seeing the process of the Great Commission as it really is in the purposes of God. As I travel around the world, one of the things that I've become increasingly aware of over these past years is that the church in the West particularly, I believe, has Bought into a lie, a very effective lie, that tells us that evangelism is our idea. That it's something that we are trying to make happen, and our best pictures of God are something along the lines of: we're really doing the hard graft down here, doing evangelism, and we are trying to twist God's arm and beg Him and plead with Him to act, to move, to do something, to partner with us as we do evangelism. And I think many of us have this sense of: you know, I've been plugging away faithfully for years, sometimes for decades. I've had friends or family members who don't know the Lord. I am praying for them, and God. is doing absolutely nothing and you have this perspective of i'm twisting his arm pleading with him trying to make him do what he alone can do but he's not really playing ball with us and we have this vision of evangelism and of god in the mix as though we are the ones carrying it forward we are the ones who are being the responsible adults in the mix and god is kind of missing in action and i want to suggest to you that this is a lie of the enemy, and it significantly hinders our fruitfulness and our understanding of what is happening. Recently, uh, that many of you, I'm sure, are aware of Charlie cleverly leads us into old dates. He was preaching on epiphanies, and he said this one line in a sermon that stuck with me. He was talking about how John, the, gospel, the writer of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, how at the end of his life, exiled on his own on the island of Patmos, all of his friends martyred, him on his own, wondering what was all of that about, how he might have been forgiven for thinking that the gospel had been a weak and fruitless attempt to stand against an unstoppable evil. I thought, wow, it got me thinking. The gospel had been a weak and fruitless attempt to stand against an unstoppable evil, and it made me think, isn't it incredible that eternity will show the exact opposite? That evil was a weak and fruitless attempt to stand against an unstoppable gospel. An unstoppable gospel. And this is something of the heart of what Paul is getting out when he writes in Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 6. All over the world, he writes. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. That's what he writes. It was true then, it's true now. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. I don't know if many of you are aware of the work of the Zacharias Trust. I work with a team of maybe 70 or so speakers now in various capacities globally. And a few years ago, when I was on maternity leave with uh, Georgia, my first child, um, we have a WhatsApp group that... The group of speakers, and we kind of let each other know where we are in the world, what we're doing. We pray for one another and then get the joy of hearing what God did. And it was incredible. When you're in the mix and you're on the road, you often don't have time to kind of stop and take it in. But being on maternity leave and week after week, day after day, someone somewhere in the world getting saved through this tiny, tiny team, we're so insignificant in terms of numbers and yet. You wouldn't believe the context, presidents, prime ministers, parliaments, terrorist organizations, hearing the gospel, back rooms of corridors of power, people hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel. And during that time, I was thinking to myself, wow, you know what I would love to see would be the days of stadium evangelism. I was thinking, oh, my word, what an incredible thing it would be to stand in front of 100,000 people at a time and get to preach the gospel. And there was a sadness in my heart. I felt like I had vision for it. I felt like I was in the auditorium already. And um, I had just a sadness in my heart because I thought to myself, those days are over. The days of stadium evangelism are over. Our culture no longer responds well to mass crowds. We tele-evangelists have muddied the waters. we were cynical about the power play of it. And I had all of these very specific phrases that were running through my mind about why the days of stadium evangelism are over. And then I read Billy Graham's book, Just As I Am, his autobiography, and it was, I'm sure, a Holy Spirit thing. It was so incredible. I don't know if you, some of you might re- even remember it. Some of you might have been there. He packed out Wembley Stadium in this nation for three months, every single night, apart from Monday nights, his day off. 100,000 people inside, 80,000 people stood outside the auditorium waiting for him so that he would preach the gospel inside, do the appeal, come out, preach the gospel again, and do the appeal for three months straight. And what was so incredible to me was in the preamble to setting up his stadium events, word for word, the exact phrases that I had said he wrote down, how he had thought the days of stadium evangelism are over. He specifically thought tele-evangelists have muddied the waters, that people are cynical about the power display, and yet 100,000 people inside 80,000 people outside, night after night after night. I wonder if you were. Did you know that Jay John has, since then, little did I know, set up an event, 8th of July. I hope you'll be there. It's called Just One. The days of stadium evangelism are very much alive. He's hoping for 20,000 Christians to bring just one non-Christian with them, 40,000 people in the Emirates Stadium on the 8th of July this year. The days of stadium evangelism are very much alive. It just requires men and women of prophetic vision to see that God is very much on the move, that people very much still respond to the gospel, that the power plays haven't broken it, that the true gospel, the real gospel, that unstoppable, relentless advancing force of the love of God and the kingdom of God are very much alive. Toby and I were part of a church plant in London about 10 years ago. When I first joined, we were 20 people in a living room. That church is almost a 1,000 strong now. And you know what we say in, Christian, in the Christian world to each other? Oh, it was probably just transfer growth. Have you noticed how we explain away every growth of the church by saying it's transfer growth? That wasn't the case. Of course people came and joined us from other churches. Of course people moved back and forth. But hundreds became Christians on our Alpha course. This gospel, this unstoppable gospel, is on the advance. Toby's grandfather died a few years ago at the age of 92. He wasn't a Christian his whole life. He was Catholic culturally, but he would have said that he didn't have a saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And throughout his life, Toby's family had been praying, pleading with God, come on, God, come on, such a lovely gentleman of a man. 92 years old, very suddenly became sick. I remember I was having my quiet time at home and I I noted the time because suddenly in the middle of the afternoon I just felt compelled to stop and just pray. And I was pleading with God and saying, God, someone needs to ask him, is he absolutely certain he knows where he's going? Someone needs to have one final conversation with him. And two hours later we got a call from Toby's father saying, my father has just gone to be with the Lord but he went to be with the Lord because two hours previously he'd made his peace with God and Toby's father had had the chance to ask him do you really know where you're going and he'd said no I don't and I want to know It wasn't a kind of panic confession. He really encountered the person of Lord Jesus, and he went home. And I thought, wow, doesn't that show you something of the heart of God? For 92 years, me and you might be thinking, we're twisting his arm. He's not doing anything. We're doing everything. We're trying to have the conversations. We're feeding in the prayer. Where is God in the mix of it? Does he not see? Does he not care? Has he gone missing in action? And all the time, God is saying, I am going to bring him home I am a patient God, I am willing to wait, but he is mine and I'll bring him home. He waited for 92 years because he knew this man is mine, but he needs his time to respond. See, God does not need convincing. He doesn't need convincing to love the lost. He doesn't need your convincing to act. You can trust that he goes ahead of you. He's preparing the global picture of what it looks like for every lost person to encounter something of the love of God and to have a chance to respond. And in the stories of the underground church, I had the privilege of hearing this testimony in person. I'll leave the country unnamed. It was a man from a context where um, Where Islam is the reigning religion, and he talked about how he had for some time had this illness and been struggling with depression and it had all got mixed up in his mind. He would basically decided that given that it's completely inconceivable in Islam that you would take your own life, he decided that this growing sickness that he felt in his body was the answer from Allah to his prayers and that Allah was killing him because he wanted to die. And he'd let this sickness grow. He hadn't seen a doctor. And one day, a few months into this process, a friend of his came and saw him. This friend was a doctor. And as soon as he came in, he said to him, oh my goodness, do you know that you are dying? And he'd said, oh, he hadn't seen anyone about it. So he hadn't been aware it was so obvious. And he he said, oh, I guess I did. I haven't been feeling very well. And the friend kind of booted him into the car and drove him to the hospital and immediately just kind of got things in motion and they had a bunch of tests done on him and the doctors came and said to him, look, we, we don't really have a vocabulary to explain to you what's happening. We know what's wrong with you and in theory, we, it is treatable. You have a form of blood poisoning, but the problem is that you have enough poison in your blood to kill 40 men. We have absolutely no idea how you are still alive. And they effectively said to him, like, this is some kind of miracle happening around you, obviously. So why don't you go home? You'll probably die on your way home. But if you don't, just say your goodbyes to your families and just, just die in peace." if by some continued miracle you are alive in the morning, then come back to us and we will begin the treatment that we would do for the normal amount of poisoning. We have no idea what impact it will have on the amount of poisoning in your blood. And he'd said, fine. He'd gone home, he'd had his evening and he'd gone to bed. And as he lay in bed, he thought to himself for the first time in months and months, he in his mind's eye, saw a vision of his wife and his little girl in the future. And he suddenly thought, I want to live. I actually want to live. It was a revelation to him. And as he fell asleep, he found himself saying, Lord, please, God, come and save me. And he thought, oh, wait a second. That's strange. I meant to say heal. And he fell asleep. In the morning he woke up, he was, I think he, outside, waiting for uh, his friend to come and take him to the doctors. And as he was standing outside shivering, his next door neighbor came to him and said, you don't look very well, what are you doing out here at dawn, and what's happening? And he said, oh, actually, I'm dying. And his friend said, oh, well, well, I need to tell you something before that happens, and literally kind of manhandled him into his home, the next door neighbor, and said, look, do you know that you're a sinner? Now, we run the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and let me tell you, this isn't the greatest opener that you can go in with if you're trying to do evangelism. Do you know that you're a sinner? And the guy had said, well, I guess, I guess I do. Great. Do you know that your sin caused Jesus to die? This man, let me tell you the level of knowledge about the gospel. He lives in a Muslim country, a country where Jesus is considered a prophet and Jesus is a very common name. He had never heard the name of Jesus in association with any form of gospel message. So when he gets told that his sin caused Jesus to die, he's a lorry driver. He thought that at some point in his career, he had reversed over someone called Jesus and killed him. That's the level of knowledge. So he's hyperventilating, very upset. When? Why did no one tell me? I didn't know. I would have stopped. I'm not a hit and run. And just increasingly upset the next door neighbor as if clearing it up clear as mud at this point says no 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 two thousand years ago (laughs) the guy is extremely upset as you can imagine having just heard that he killed someone called jesus the next door neighbor says look we're not getting anywhere just sit down i'm going to say a bunch of stuff if you want to repeat them that's great you repeat them and then you will experience this person called jesus he said fine he sits down lord jesus Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin caused you to die. And he was relaying the story saying, I thought to myself, I'm a dead man anyway. Like I care at this point. I know my sin caused you to die. Please come and save me. And he thought, that's the word I used last night. Please, now for real, come and save me. And a power came into his body. He was thrown across the room, totally out cold. When he got up, He knew he had encountered the risen Lord Jesus. He was completely healed, completely healed, not only of the blood poisoning, but of the depression and the addictions and everything else. He was a completely changed man. He now leads a bunch of underground churches in that nation. And he ran back to his home with this little New Testament covered up and went and gave it to his wife. His wife was a fanatical Muslim And she was livid that he had brought this book into her home, threw it across the room and was extremely upset with him and basically told him she was going to hand him into the authorities, which would have meant his execution. It's a crime punishable by death in that nation to become a Christian if you've been a Muslim. And she took up the story at that point saying for the next six months, every morning she woke up with the decision that she was going to hand her husband in. And every evening she would go to bed wondering, what is wrong with me? Why do I not appear to be in control of my physical behavior? I intend to hand him in. I intend to go to the station. And I do not seem to make that happen. What is going on? And she was increasingly upset. Obviously, he was also speaking to her about the gospel. And she just was weary and fighting and upset and just didn't know what was happening. And then six months in, she said she suddenly had this moment of revelation where she thought, wait a second, six months ago, my husband was dead. And now he is alive. Yeah. In every sense, dead. Now, in every sense, alive. And The revelation caused this unbelievable tension in her heart. She said she went to bed sobbing out loud. And as she was sobbing, she kept saying the words, God, I am weary. I am weary. I am weary. I'm weary of this tension. I'm weary of this struggle. I'm weary of this battle with myself. I am weary. I know that you are real. I just don't know who you are. And you're going to have to show me who you are. I cannot go on even one more day. Reveal yourself to me. She fell asleep. I want to remind you that the level of knowledge, combined knowledge that her and her husband had about the Christian faith is such that he thinks he's run over Jesus when he does (laughs) gets told he's caused Jesus' death. No knowledge about the gospel at all. She falls asleep saying, I'm weary, I'm weary, I'm weary. That night she has a dream. In her dream, she's walking up to a hill. On top of the hill, there are three crosses. The cross in the middle is shining. And words from the cross speak to her, saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. She has no idea what these words mean. She wakes up with a start. She's completely shaken up. On the door, of that pesky next-door neighbor again. He's had a dream too. And he comes and says, I know that you encountered the risen Lord Jesus last night. Let me show you where those words came from. And opens up the scriptures with her. And husband or wife are radically saved. You see, God knows how to woo the lost. You don't need to teach him. You don't need to remind him. You don't need to beg with him or plead with him. You don't need to convince him. He loves the lost. He absolutely loves the lost. He would go to any lengths whatsoever. He did go to every length whatsoever to already buy them, to purchase them with the blood that was spilled. He don't need to twist his arm all over the world. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. All over the world. And I want to encourage you to begin to understand evangelism and to begin to see God in the picture more like the slipstream of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit has already gone ahead of you. If there are individuals on your heart that you are praying for, thinking of, family members, friends, next-door neighbors, colleagues, God goes ahead of you. The Holy Spirit has already devised his action plan of how they might best be reached. And he's saying to you, look, get into my slipstream. Get into my slipstream. I am on this mission already evangelism is the Holy Spirit's adventure. It's not our adventure. It's his adventure. It's his idea. And he's saying to us, look, I've already reached you. You are my adventure. I've already reached you. Now I'm saying, come into my adventure. Come and partner with me. Get into my slipstream. I want to invite you, see God as he really is. It raises your ability to be fruitful because you understand that it's his adventure and you are partnering with him and not the other way around. So seeing God, secondly, seeing the lost. I think a second and even more debilitating lie is the lie that the lost are not thirsty. In fact, we often think of them as hostile, at best indifferent, but definitely not thirsty and I think one of the best pictures that I can come up with to kind of explain what I sense when I'm talking to Christians again particularly in the west as they engage with evangelism is that we have begun to believe that we're like telesales executives phoning people just as they're about to sit down for dinner and selling them something that they don't want and we suspect don't even need it's a very effective lie I want to invite you, recognize it for what it is. And if you ever find yourself thinking that again, if you ever find yourself looking at someone who is lost, broken, far away, not yet brought near, unreconciled to God... If you find in your mind this thought that they're not thirsty, they're not searching, they don't care about the gospel, they're indifferent, whatever else is happening on the outside, recognize it and root it out as a lie of the enemy that incapacitates you to reach that person, that desperately thirsty person. There's a story you might have heard because it's kind of almost 15 years ago that this happened, but it happened to a family friend of mine, so I'll share it anyway. Again, in a country, I'll leave a, name, a Muslim nation, pastor and his wife driving from one city to another through these kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, deserted territories. And they happened upon this petrol station in the middle of nowhere. They were carrying some Bibles with them, stashed and hidden in their cars. And the wife feels the Holy Spirit speak to her. There's a man standing at the petrol station, a religious military policeman. He's standing to attention, fully armed. And the wife looks at the husband and says, I think the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. You need to give that man a Bible. (laughs) Now, she's talking to one of the pastors of the underground church. He's very... Very much okay with the idea of giving his life for the Lord. It's just being shot at point blank range for doing something completely ludicrous is not really part of his plan. So, maybe unsurprisingly, he refused. He filled up the car with petrol, went and paid for it, got back in the car, started driving away, and the wife became increasingly agitated. No, 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 you need to give that man a Bible. I am telling you, you need to give that man a Bible. I know the Holy Spirit's speaking to me, and he, the husband was not part of this uh, conversation between her and the Holy Spirit. And um, I kid you not, this is what she did. She put her hands together and said out loud as he's driving away, Father, on judgment day, let that man's blood be on my husband's shoulders. (laughs) Gotta love wives, godly wives. They're amazing, right? Because I told him to give that man a Bible, and he refused. Amen. (laughs) Husband, livid, slams the brakes on, turns the car around, drives back into the petrol station, gets the Bible, literally shoves it in, again, not the best form of evangelism technique, shoves it into this man's hand, turns around and starts walking away, at this point expecting to be shot in his back, point-blank range. And he said that what made him turn around was the sound of the thud as this huge man knelt on the floor weaponry all around him. The Bible clasped to his heart, sobbing out loud and saying that three days ago he'd had a dream in which Jesus had appeared to him and said, I know that you are thirsty. I know that you are searching for truth. Go and stand at this petrol station. I will send you somebody who will give you the truth. He had stood to attention for 3 days waiting. You see, when we look at the outward appearance and make our endless judgment calls that this person isn't thirsty, that person isn't thirsty, that person is disinterested. This person has their life together. They don't need the gospel. We are not seeing with godly eyes. There is a loss of prophetic vision. And I believe that part of what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do amongst you is the impartation of a prophetic vision so that when you see the lost, you see they're thirsty. They really are. And just in case it sounds like I put it together on this a few years ago, we're doing a mission a week on Bristol Campus University. Usually we work as a team for the whole week, but this time around we just all dotted in and out for a day. I was, on there, I was there on the Thursday and the way that we had done our altar calls for the week was we'd use this little feedback form that said, count me in, tell me more. I have a question. And We explained that in the moment by count me in was, I want to become a Christian. Tell me more going on their alpha course. And then I have a question. And on the Thursday, I'm looking at some 50 non-Christians or so. And I thought to myself, I just, I just didn't have faith to go for the count me in. So I just went for the tell me more. I think I barely mentioned the count me and I just said, if you want to know more, there's an alpha course. And I just really plugged at the tell me more. The next day, my colleague went in, same group of people, pretty much the same material. He went for count me in and seven people became Christians. We are believing the lie when we think, oh, I just don't think they're there. They don't feel like they're with me. I'm just not going to go for it. I think they're not thirsty. I think they're not interested. It's a lie. It really is a lie and a, a very effective one. You know what? They don't come with main badges, the thirsty ones. We look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he sends us to share the gospel. Now, let me just get very practical very briefly and say this. <clears throat> it was a revelation to me a few years ago. To suddenly remember that the gospel is true <laughs> that the gospel is actually true God really did create us, and he created us with deep longings. We are only alive when we are with him. This is really true. And if this this is true, then the gospel, the saving work of Jesus, is tailor-made for us. It resonates with our deepest needs. It resonates with who we are and how we were made. So we can believe as we preach the real gospel, the true gospel, the full gospel to people. It resonates because it was tailor-made for them. The deepest longings of the human heart, tailor-made for the solution of the gospel, for relationship with God. And so we can preach with confidence knowing this really does resonate. It resonates with everyone because everyone was made with this mold, this image of God, and these deep longings. But somehow the gospel in our society is covered over by all sorts of misconceptions, misperceptions, misunderstandings. And it's our job to bridge the gap between the real gospel. If you like, it's like a clarion call that has gone out, but it's been muffled. The bell can't be heard. It's muffled by all sorts of misconceptions. And it's our job to let the gospel really ring clear again, because when it ring clear, rings clear, it resonates. I don't know if you have thought about how might that be best done? How might that be best done? And I just want to talk to you very simply about the art of conversation. I don't know if you've heard about a survey that's been done in the UK. It's called Talking Jesus. And it's about how we as Christians in this nation have conversations with our non-Christian friends. Some of it is very encouraging, but one statistic absolutely broke my heart. It said that Having spoken to a Christian that they know, so non-Christians were surveyed. Having spoken to a Christian that they know, 59% of them said they did not want to know about any more about Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Almost two in three people, having had a conversation with a Christian, said that they did not want to know any more. This is completely opposite to how the gospel really is and how the gospel operates. Something is going horribly wrong with our conversations and I have a few ideas of what that might be and I'm just going to share it with you very briefly. I think many of us when we think about doing evangelism for whatever reason we get a little bit uptight and tense and nervous and we put on that dreaded superhero costume that is known as the evangelist persona. And we wear it, and we kill our friends with it. And this is what I mean by that. Often in our evangelistic conversations, we forget who we are. We lose all of the normal nuances of our social skills. We forget all of the normal conversational skills that we've had, and we suddenly speak at people and preach at people. And that's not usually who we are. And I just want to encourage you to regain your normal social skills (laughs) when you are doing evangelism. Don't speak at people. Ask questions. The problem is often when we think about preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, we think about preaching rather than conversations. You know what's so interesting is that in the New Testament, we often think of Jesus preaching, and yet actually he asked hundreds and hundreds of questions. When people came to him with a question, he often didn't reply with an answer. He replied with a question. It's conversations, deep, real, engaging conversations. The art of enjoying connecting with people on things of depth and resonance. I want to invite you, make it your goal to be a good conversationalist. Make, Make it your goal to be curious about people, to enjoy speaking about people, to be a people person. Many of my friends who are not Christians call me their deep friend. Make it your goal to be everyone's deep friend. And I don't mean by that weird and intense and overly deep. I just mean have real conversations, have deep conversations, because those naturally usually become God conversations over time. If you're thinking, I don't know how to get into these conversations, you might be trying to have God conversations. And what you need to be doing is trying to have real conversations, deep conversations, and actual conversations rather than a 10-minute preach followed by one question and then another 10-minute slot for you and one second for the other person. Conversations. Deep, real, engaging conversations. Learn the art of asking questions. Because questions allow you to see that person as they really are. For example, someone asks you, why would a good God allow suffering? The danger of apologetics, the field that I am so often working in, giving a reasoned defense for the gospel, is that you can end up memorizing a bunch of answers and you think, great, someone has asked me that question. I know everything there is to know about this question. Here is my 40-minute lecture on the finer points of the philosophy of this question. You know what? I have completely missed that person because for everyone who asks that question, there is a different strand of where they might be coming from. It's a common phrase that there's a world of difference, cancer to an oncologist or cancer to a young mother with three months to live. The same question, good God allowing suffering, can come from one end of the spectrum, from a purely research philosophical perspective, or it can come from someone who is facing the very darkest times of their life. If you don't learn to ask questions, and if you think of evangelism purely as speaking, Then you will miss the person in front of you. You will—you might address even the question, but you won't address the questioner. Long before I kind of got into this job, I am so glad that Michael Ramsden and those who've gone ahead really taught me: be willing to lose the argument. The argument is not where it's at. Win the person. Win the person engage, learn to love the person, to hear the person. Andy Moore, one of my colleagues, talks about it as the comeback tomorrow principle. Speak in such a way, engaging, asking questions, opening up the depth of conversation that leaves people intrigued, wanting more. They haven't been hammered down with, here's the full thing in 50 minutes that I can give you. Gentle, gentle, salt, light, a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. In Acts, I think it's chapter 25, when Peter is speaking to, uh, Paul is speaking to Felix, he keeps calling him back again and again and again and again. The come back tomorrow principle. Make sure you are operating in the come back tomorrow principle that when people speak to you, they think that was interesting, that was deep, that was profound, that left me wanting a bit more. I'm not saying they all become Christians, But when 59% of people said that they don't want to hear any more about Jesus after they've talked to a Christian, it tells me that we've forgotten the art of conversation. Very basic, but so profound. Then taking the next steps. Don't just stop at good conversations, deep conversations, real conversations. Be willing to take a little gentle risks with the Holy Spirit to then have God conversations. And you know what? Not just God conversations, but Jesus conversations. There's this interesting trajectory. You can have deep conversations and become increasingly skilled at that. Make sure you're someone who's just always having real conversations, not just small talk. It's a jump then. It's an intentional jump to direct that conversation gently, if you can, in natural ways towards God conversations, and then another leap again to say, not just abstract concept God, what do you think about Jesus? And be, have that in your mind It's almost like a trajectory, a spectrum that you're working on. Practice every day, day in, day out, deep conversations. Then ask God, help me to move these to God conversations. Then help me to move this to where the buck stops. What do you think about Jesus? We were in East London just in November, having a, a five days with local churches there doing mission we were doing this evening where we were all out flyering and stopping people, giving them teas and coffees and chatting with them. I found it so interesting. For about an hour, I was leading the team trying to like, just have conversations, stop people and have real conversations, deep conversations on the streets, and it just was going nowhere. And I said, you know what? This isn't working. I'm pulling the plug on this. Just stop people and ask to pray for them. For the next hour and a half... Only one person said no to the offer to stop and pray. People literally from every nation and every tribe and every tongue, it seemed. I think I prayed with over 20 people on the streets. What can I pray for you for? We're Christians from the local context here. And they shared so deeply and so really they wanted to connect with something more. And then the next phase of, okay, let me tell you in whose name I've prayed. Let me move on for the sake of time. Let me just quickly say, be prepared for their questions. I'm going to do a shameless plug for the training weekends that the Zacharias Trust runs. You're based in Oxford. These weekends are so accessible to you. Twice a year. It's a course of three weekends. Every six months they happen. Three weekends in total, they will give you a complete foundational understanding of apologetics. Know your staff. In every area of life, if you want to get good at something, you have to put time into it. I often joke that if I come off the platform, if I've been doing apologetics, there will inevitably be a Christian who comes and says to me, I know, I just love that you know about this, and I don't really have time to get into it. If you could break it down for me five words or less, you know, the question of suffering or whatever else it might be, and it's one of my pet peeves. No, I can't. You know why? Because that's not how the real world works. If you want to love the lost, if you want to reach them, do some homework. It's really not a lot. It's just a few books, a few talks online maybe. But in some of the time, be prepared for their questions. And then finally, asking God for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I love that when it says in Corinthians, now about the gifts of the Spirit, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers now about spiritual gifts, those words spiritual and gifts never actually appear together in the New Testament. It's better translated, now about what the Holy Spirit is doing. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. Many of us have sometimes this, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if the gifts are for me. I don't know if I can experience them in everyday life. It's not about you. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing and I want to pray for us later that we would encounter more of God and more of the Holy Spirit. Let me bring this to a close. <clears throat> I want you to notice a running trend. I wish I could have time to tell you all of the stories that just make up the, the kind of the backdrop to this talk. But of the ones that I've shared, I want you to notice a running theme. God does not use the supernatural to bypass the church. He uses the supernatural to empower the church. See, the same incredible supernatural God has set a religious military policeman to his feet, standing to attention, fully armed for three days gave him a dream and at the same time gets this pastor and his wife to travel from one place to another to stop at this random petrol station to hear the holy spirit and to hand over but that same god could so easily have magicked up a bible out of nowhere but he didn't he sent one of us to deliver it this is evan- this is the best picture of evangelism i can give you know your stuff Have normal conversational skills. Be intent on having deep conversations that become God conversations that become Jesus conversations. In all of it, listen to the Holy Spirit in his slipstream. Because all of the supernatural empowering work of God goes ahead of you and empowers you to do this. But it really is intended to empower you to take your rightful place in the adventure. God doesn't bypass us in his process to winning the lost. Let me end with this final thought. There's a question that I get given quite a lot in this country, and it's, don't all religions lead to God? We live in a pluralistic context. We are, I think, often very worried about speaking about one way, one truth. It's very interesting to me that we would even have this idea that all religions lead to God. Do you know that only the Christian faith even makes that claim? Buddhism, Hinduism don't lead you to God. Atheism quite clearly doesn't lead you to God. That's not the claim. Islam doesn't lead you to God. It leads you to paradise, but not to God. There are only two mentions in the whole of Islamic scriptures that even reference God as being in paradise. You don't go there to be with him. Only the Christian faith even makes the claim that you are leading people to God. And so I want to end with just this thought this is what evangelism is about don't lead people to a doctrine don't lead people to a set of ideas to a set of feelings to a set of behaviors make sure you really live through that incredible awesome and unique privilege to actually lead them to god that's the invitation of the christian faith and that's what we live in the good of I wonder if I can ask you to stand to your feet and I would like to pray for us and to ask the Holy Spirit to impart something of a prophetic vision for you as a community of people that there would be an exponential increase in the fruitfulness of how you engage with your non-Christian friends, with those who don't yet know what it is to be with God. And I want to pray that you would experience more of God yourselves. That you would know what it is to be with God. That that would be your experience first and foremost. Children of God, that is what we are. And then it would overflow from there. So Holy Spirit... We call on you, wonderful God, this God that went to any and every length to pursue us, to save us, this God whose adventure it was to win us as the prize of his heart, this God who willingly went to the cross because he knew that person and that person and that person. I am going to woo them. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to win them no matter what it takes. I'm going to wait 92 years I'm going to send the full force of my power and my energies to redeem them, to release them, to seek them out, to save them. God, I pray, first of all, that we would live in the good of what it means to have been with God. That would be our present reality, that all of this would overflow from seeing ourselves as we really are with God. With God right now, not even waiting for a future eternity, but right now, the Holy Spirit in us, the hope of glory, right now, already redeemed, right now, already justified, right now, already children of God. And I pray out of that overflow, there would be a sudden, even now as I'm praying, Lord God, I just pray for a sudden opening of eyes that we might see the lost as thirsty, that we might see the lost as thirsty. And that we might see you, Holy Spirit, as going ahead of us and us in your slipstream. And I pray for the impartation of a gift of faith that brings about a multiplied fruitfulness. I pray that the inheritance of this church would exponentially grow. We ask of you, God. Do it not because of us, not because we're great, not because even because we suddenly get it or see it, but because you love the lost. You know, as I was preparing for you, I suddenly thought, wow, there'll be a room of a few hundred people. Each of us here connected to tens, maybe hundreds of people who have not yet known what it is to be with God. What would it look like if we just reached our networks? God, those tens and those hundreds, those thousands of people combined who are represented by the people in this room, reach them, God. Reach them, God. And let this church be flooded with testimonies of what it looks like to live in the slipstream of God. In Jesus' name, amen.